The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're looking at some of the ways bacteria cooperate with other organisms to break down plants. First, Dr. Lisa Carr gets into the details of how rabbits and cows ferment their food. Then, Mark Stumpfallen has some practical tips on keeping your compost pile and soil alive and happy. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm your host, Marian Kilgore. Joining me is Dr. Lisa Carr, an associate professor of animal science at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln and a specialist in companion animal nutrition. She has authored peer-reviewed research publications, book chapters, and extension publications, as well as received a good number of teaching and advising awards. Lisa is the instructor for undergraduate courses in companion animal biology, behavior, and nutrition. She also coordinates companion animal outreach programs for youth in Nebraska interested in dogs, cats, rabbits, and other companion animals. So thanks for speaking to me today. Hi, thanks for having me. So just to get things going, how did you get interested in companion animal biology specifically as opposed to animal biology in general? Well, as a kid, I was always like the kid who had dogs and was really excited about dogs. And I loved rabbits as a kid. So I always thought I wanted to do something with dogs as a grown up, but I didn't know what and I didn't want to be a veterinarian. Mm -hmm. Uh, So in college, I found out that there were programs in companion animal nutrition. And so um, I have a PhD in nutrition for dogs and cats. Um, And so I had thought maybe I would work for a pet food company Uh, in nutrition. And then I decided that I had a passion for teaching. And so that's sort of where I ended up where I am today. So what counts as a companion animal these days? Because the line between pet and sort of industrial or or work animal seems to get fuzzier all the time. Yeah, I always find that it's almost a hard thing to define because in my mind, a companion animal is any animal that's primary job is to provide us comfort or companionship, you know, to be our friend. And so that sort of expanded from being mostly dogs and cats, you know, and like mice and rats and gerbils to now it includes some reptiles and birds. And, you know, I think we can kind of expand it out. So it is sort of a, it's sort of becoming a bigger category as more people move different animals into their households. Uh, Yeah, because I have a pet rabbit and my grandmother would definitely not consider a rabbit to be a pet. So. Yeah, I I also have pet rabbits, right, that are litter box trained and run around in the house. And I think that a lot of people maybe wouldn't have thought of that as something that people would do. Uh, so what sort of differences do the students learn about when they're going into a specialty for companion animals as opposed to like a farmer industrial type biology? Well, I think... Some of the basic animal biology is going to be the same uh, in that, you know, a lot of animal biology is equivalent across species, but then also the specialization uh, in terms of thinking about how we handle companion animals and our relationships, but then also for those species, because our goal is to have them live with us longer and we want to keep them throughout their entire lifespan versus only um, having them to meet production standards, we think about a lot more things. Obviously, there's diseases we are looking at in dogs and cats that you wouldn't consider treating or, or might not ever see in livestock species. And so that difference in relationship and the fact that we're keeping these animals for 15, 20 years, depending on their lifespan, um, I think changes how we need to study them and look at them and, and their roles in our society and then that biology and how it plays out in terms of aging. 
when we're approaching nutrition for a companion animal versus a farm animal, uh, what are sort of the major differences there? So uh, when we're thinking about nutrition for farm animals, our goal is how do we increase production? So if it's a pig or something that we're raising for meat, how do we get it to the market size as quickly as possible? Versus uh, for our companion animals, our goal would be how to have the healthiest animal that's going to live with us the longest. And so like feeding for maximum growth is actually a negative. If our dogs grow too fast, we add too much stress on their joints and they are more likely to have arthritis later. And so we actually change it to think about can we slow dog growth a little bit in order to help um, expand their lifespan and prevent those diseases later. And so it's really a lot more about thinking how do we keep them healthy for the long term, more similar to human nutrition, I think, and how we would think about human nutrition versus um, thinking about hitting some production standard. Right. When we're talking about nutrition, obviously, digestion and the gut varies uh, from animal to animal. So I was wondering if you could start us off with like a basic primer of digestion in general, maybe how the human digestive system works, because for some of us, biology was a while ago. Uh, so in terms of like if we think about the human digestive system, which is a little bit simpler maybe than some of the other animals that we might talk about, um, right, we, our food, right, we start in our mouth, we chew our food, travels down our esophagus to our stomach. In the stomach, the primary things that are happening is that there's an acidic environment that's going to start breaking down uh, the protein from our diet. Uh, and then it moves into our small intestine. Uh, within the small intestine, there's um, a host of enzymes that would be secreted. Um, and with and there, you're going to see the vast majority of your nutrients being absorbed and digested. So um, all of the protein will be broken down that can be in your small intestine, fats from your diet, vitamins, um, the carbohydrates, starches, those sorts of things are all broken down within the small intestine and the nutrients absorbed there. Uh, anything that's not digestible um, would pass then into the large intestine or our colon. Um, and in the large intestine, there's a whole host of bacteria that reside there. And bacteria in the large intestine would break down those nutrients, the things that make it to that point. So a lot of fiber and maybe some undigested protein. Uh, and the bacteria then grow to produce more bacterial cells, so producing their own protein and nutrients. Um, and then, so they're utilizing that part of the diet. And then that obviously makes up our waste. We'll reabsorb water in the large intestine, and then whatever's left over is then excreted as waste. So that's sort of the human digestive system, pretty kind of shortly uh, explained. <laughs> Fair enough. So uh, humans have an appendix. Does the appendix actually do anything, I guess is my question. Uh, not really, no, right, which is why we can live without it. There's some thought that our human appendix is equivalent to what we would see in other animals as their cecum. Humans have a very small, what we would consider a cecum, which is like a blind pouch um, off of the large intestine where it meets the small intestine. Uh, and so there's some thought that that's used to be what the appendix is and that it was used for fermentation, maybe when we were more like a hunter-gatherer and maybe having to eat more roughages or fibrous material than we do now so that we could utilize those better. 
but now it's pretty non-functional. In other animal species like our rabbit or a horse, um, we would see them have a large cecum or a large um, big pouch there um, where a lot of the fermentation or breakdown of their high fiber diet would occur to make more nutrients for them to use. Yeah. So so in what other ways does hum- does the human gut compare with mammals who are herbivores like horses or rabbits? Or, or maybe start, maybe pick one. <laughs> okay. I was going to say structurally wise, the human is probably closest to the dog. Um, and then when we think about horses or rabbits that are herbivores, one of the big differences, horses and rabbits are pretty similar, is that their their stomach, their small intestine is that pretty similar, but they both have these large cecums where our appendix is. And the difference is, is that in that cecum, they would break down fiber from their diet. So that would be the indigestible plant material. Um, It tends to be the part of the plant that's like the coarser or harsher, harder part of the plant. You know, if we were to go eat uh, raw hay or something like that would be really high in fiber. And our bodies can't digest that. And so the bacterial populations within their cecum can break down that fiber and get it into a form that's used. um, And from that Fiber bacteria produce uh, some B vitamins, vitamin K, as well as really high quality proteins that the animal can then utilize. Uh, in rabbits, um, there's actually a chemical signal from their cecum that goes to their brain and tells them when that uh, fibrous material that's been fermented is going to be expelled or excreted, and they will consume it as it's being excreted. And that's how they get the, the protein that's produced in their cecum and can use that fiber. If they weren't to do that, they wouldn't be able to get any nutrients out of the fiber in their diet. Just like if we eat a bunch of hay or something, we wouldn't get any value out of it. That's how they're able to utilize the nutrients in a lower quality diet. So, so okay. So the fiber goes from their small intestine into their large intestine into this cecum dead end area. Yeah. Actually, it's kind of cool. In uh, rabbits, there's... Uh, different waves of contractions within their small intestine. So the small intestine, you can kind of think of it ending as a T. So one, at the end of the small intestine, one end would be that blind pouch into the cecum, and then the other direction is our large intestine. Mm-hmm. So the contractions in their uh, small intestine push that fiber into the large intestine. And contractions there will actually push up the soluble portion of the fiber, or the fiber that's fermentable and can be broken down into the cecum so that only the part that's really fermented can be sorted out and it goes up into the cecum to be used by the bacteria. And then the portion um, that's just waste and the bacteria can't use goes down through the rest of their large intestine. And it's excreted as those, um, if you're familiar with rabbits, right, the little round pellets of poop that you find in their cage. Um, So their body actually is able through contractions to sort the materials into what they can break down by the bacteria and what really won't be broken down. And that's how you end up with the two different types of poop is which direction it goes in uh, from the contractions in the intestine. So then you, and you mentioned that it, the, after the fiber is fermented in the cecum, it produces, or the result includes some high quality protein. So is that formed by, well, and the vitamins, are those formed by the bacterial colonies in there? Yeah, so the protein is actually the bacterial cells themselves um, because the bacterial cells are made up of a lot of protein, and so they can use that protein. Um, So as the bacteria have more fiber or more food for them to eat, they make more cells, right? They they would have have cell division, so we see more bacterial cells, and then increases in cell size. So that protein that's produced by the cell bacteria to make more cells is what the animal can get the nutrients from. 
And then they're producing their own vitamins for them to use. But when the animal eats the bacteria, then they're able to get those nutrients. Is, in general, is that why some different types of animals need to, to get different vitamins from their diets and some can produce their own? Yes, to some extent. There, some of them that would happen the way. So if we think about cattle, mm-hmm. which are a completely different herbivore, um, cattle have a rumen, which is a huge fermentation vat um, in, before their stomach. So their bacteria reside before their stomach even sees any of the food. And so cattle eat the hay and the bacteria break it down right away. And so they're able to produce those vitamins in that rumen before it goes into their stomach. And so that's why they can live without some of those items in their diet. So one thing that I know that people find sort of strange when I mention it to them. uh, So you were saying the rabbit gets a chemical signal that the poop from the cecum is about to come out through the anus. Mm -hmm. And then they eat that. Yes. And essentially they eat it before it even is exposed to air. So they'll eat it as it's coming out. Um, guinea pigs do the same thing. There are several species of animals that would do that to be able to just get that nutrient-dense, uh, we call it a cecal pellet or a cecotroph, um, but that stool that comes specifically from the cecum. And so that the whole purpose of that is to get these dead bacteria and broken down fiber into the stomach. Yes. <laughs> because protein digestion would occur in the stomach, and so that's how they can meet their protein needs. When you think about the diet of a wild rabbit, it's a lot of plant material, mm-hmm. which doesn't really have any protein in it or has very little levels of protein in it. And so this is an adaptation for rabbits in the wild to be able to meet their protein needs that they have to have for muscle growth, for cell t- division, um, from a diet that really didn't contain much protein in it whatsoever. Um, and so they eat it to be able to meet their nutrient needs. And so without consuming that, they wouldn't have enough protein in their diet to meet their needs. Yeah. Okay. So rabbits eat uh, a lot of, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, low quality sort of plant material, you know, bark, leaves, grass, hay. Um, so if a human tried to live on that diet, we'd, we'd basically be protein deficient the whole time. Yes, we would not make it on that diet. We would be deficient in protein as well as some vitamins. So, what, And we probably would have a lot of stomach upset because it wouldn't ever really break down very well in our GI tract. So what about sugar? Uh, rabbits are herbivores, but what would happen to this entire bacterial gut balance if you fed them fruit all of the time? Yeah, so rabbits... Uh, In terms of what foods they choose, they're what we call a concentrate selector. So they actually prefer to choose the foods. Um, So if you have a rabbit, they like sugary foods. So they like foods that are rich, like calorie dense, because in the wild, if they're only eating those low quality foods, they would want to choose things that have better nutrients. And so they prefer those foods. But the problem is, is that with them as pets, if we feed them a lot of sugar, it offsets that balance in the GI tract. So if that sugar reaches the large intestine, it actually can shift which bacteria are going to produce uh, compounds from it. So it can kill off some bacteria by changing pH um, or uh, alter their fermentation profile. And so it actually can have some negative effects if we're feeding them a lot of sugar. Obviously, it can lead to obesity as well in our pets. And so realistically, we should be limiting the amount of sugar because it's not a part of their natural diet. (laughs) That is that entire description of how their gut works is just 
so bizarre to me. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not what I'm used to. <laughs> so, um, so what about in terms of, so for a pet rabbit, if for some reason, uh, a vet was going to perform surgery on a rabbit, you know, with a human or a cat, we would have them fast so that there's less in the stomach and less in the gut to get in the way. But can you do that with a rabbit with this whole fermentation thing going on? So in most cases, we don't have rabbits fast before surgery. And there's a couple reasons for that. One of the big reasons that humans or dogs or cats are fasted before surgery is also so that you don't vomit up or aspirate what's in your intestines when you're under surgery. Mm. Rabbits don't can't throw things up like they're they have a valve there. So there's nothing will come back up. So rabbits won't vomit. So you don't have to worry about that under surgery. So you don't have as much of an issue um, and you potentially have more health effects if you've starved their GI tract and removed those bacteria populations. And so most often they won't fast rabbits before surgery. Well, so that's a fair question. So we have a lot of wild hares in Alberta and they seem pretty willing to eat just about anything. So if a rabbit can't vomit, what do they do if they make a really poor food choice? Um, luckily, I guess a lot of the, the bacteria can detoxify some of those compounds. Um, and so they won't get as, have as many issues as maybe we do. Um, but one of the bigger problems, because they can't vomit when we think about rabbits in captivity is if they're chewing on their fur or they're eating things, then they can get blockages in their intestines because it doesn't come back out. So unlike cats, they can cough up their hairball. The hairball just gets stuck in the GI tract of rabbits. Okay. And so that's why, like, for captive diets of rabbits, we really want to think about making sure they have a lot of fiber or a lot of hay in their diet, something that will kind of keep pushing things through the GI tract or add some bulk to the diet. If you only feed a rabbit a pelleted diet and not that hay, you can sometimes not have things be pushed through. And then because they can't vomit, it gets stuck. And we have what's called GI stasis, where nothing kind of moves through the GI tract at all. <laughs> Okay, fair does enough. Does that make sense? That does make sense. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so, so you'd also mentioned cows, which sort of from the outside seem like they eat a lot of similar sorts of food. They're eating grass, they're eating, you know, whatever they can forage in the field or hay that they're fed. Um, so do, do cows really have four stomachs? So cows have more, it's like one stomach, but it has four compartments. Okay. And so they have the rumen, which is this huge vat where the bacteria live. So it's similar to that cecum in uh, rabbits, but it starts, it's the first thing their food goes to after they swallow their food. The first part that it would go to is the rumen. And then there's the reticulum, the abomasum, and the omasum. So one section of their stomach acts the same as our stomach, but the other parts are going to be for fermentation and then some water reabsorption. So when we, when cows eat, um, because their bacteria reside first, they can actually even lower quality grass and plant material than rabbits or horses. Um, so they can eat almost any kind of plant material or forage and not have uh, any issues because their bacteria can break down that fiber first versus um, it going through the normal, our true stomach first. So, and what about when they're chewing cud? What is that? Okay. So when they eat the grass they're eating, right, that long stem grass or plant material, and they'll swallow that down into the rumen. 
And then the larger particles um, or larger stems of grass, they'll they'll um, sort of vomit those back up or bring those back up to the mouth and chew those more and then swallow them again. And it's a way for them to help decrease the particle size of the fiber or plant material they're eating so that those pieces that they've consume the first time around, get smaller and smaller and make it easier for the bacteria to break them down. So it's a way to keep breaking down the their food into smaller pieces before dige- for digestion to occur. Okay. So in humans, uh, if we were regularly vomiting or getting stomach acid in our throat, that can cause pain and damage. So do cow, is the rumen not acidic and that's why it doesn't bother cows? Right. The rumen, that section, in order for the bacteria to live, it's more of a neutral pH. Uh, and so they don't have that same, um, the, ac- the more acidic part of the stomach is the later component of their stomach. So the last portion will be more like ours and have that acidic fraction. So the first part is where those bacteria live and it's more neutral uh, than our stomach would be. Is the bacteria in the stomach or in the rumen of cows pretty similar to the bacteria in the cecum of horses and rabbits, or do they have fairly different colonies? It would be fairly similar. Um, There's some really current research that shows that maybe everyone's bacterial populations are slightly different, that you can almost like fingerprint a person or an animal based on those bacterial populations that reside in either their large intestine or in their rumen. Uh, And so they are slightly different, but the types of bacteria that are present are fairly similar between animals. Well, and how do the bacteria get into the stomach in the first place? Does it just come through food and and milk, or? Yeah. So when an animal is born, it's you know a sterile environment. But even just things like in the process of being born, there's going to be some bacteria consumed. It'll be environmental consumption um, from exposure, right? Uh, as they're around their their mom and consuming the milk, they're going to consume some bacteria that will reside in there. Um, And so over time, that would happen. In some cases where animals get sick or they're on antibiotics long term, we sort of kill off that uh, bacterial population. And then we can do some things, right? That would be one of the reasons like people consume yogurt, right? Is that it's a live bacterial culture. And the goal is that that live bacterial culture will reach um, our large intestine and can help alter the bacterial populations that are there. So there are some dietary things that we do as well to help change that bacterial population. Oh, okay. Um, so are there many species of ruminants? I mean, cows are the ones that I think of most often. So yeah, cows and sheep are probably the two most common ones we think about. Um, but there are other animals that have um fermentation in the before their stomach. So even uh, kangaroos have some fermentation um, prior to their stomach. So there are a lot of species of animals that have fermentation uh, earlier um, before the stomach goes through if they're eating that fibrous diet. So what about methane production? Every so often in the news or science articles, I hear about cow burps and cow farts contributing to greenhouse gases. So is that from the the fermentation process or, or something else? Yeah. So during fermentation, um, bacteria will break down the fiber, the carbohydrates into uh, different compounds. So the primary one they produce is short chain fatty acids. And these are acetate, propionate, butyrate. And those are used for energy 
by the bacterial cells or for energy from the cattle's own cells, the rumen cells can use those for energy as well. Um, but then also um, some gases are produced. So methane gas is the primary gas that's produced from carbohydrate fermentation as well as carbon dioxide. And so, yeah, that's where we see like the cow belches or farts are producing some level of methane gas. And I think depending on what thing you read, right, it depends on how much that estimate is and how that's affecting the environment. Um, but yeah, that's where it comes from is that methane is produced from fermentation of carbohydrates in the rumen or in the large intestine. So thinking back, I realized I didn't ask you, we talked about the rumen and the stomach, but you mentioned those two other sections of the cow stomach. Are those are those sort of secondary and tertiary for fermentation? or? Uh, so the difference, those ones would be sort of a transition sort of between the rumen environment and the stomach. So the rumen, it's very fluid um, inside and a lot of water and the bacteria and fiber. So one section is going to be responsible for things like water reabsorption so that the it gets less liquid and a little more solid. Um, and there's some vitamin mineral reabsorption that occurs um, in those segments as we transition to then the acidic environment of the stomach-like segment, segment that's just like our stomach. Okay. So then... Uh, so then cows don't have the big cecum that rabbits and horses have. They have a more sort of straight through process in their large intestine. So, so they do have a little bit of a cecum, but it's not the same. It's, it's not like as big of a capacity. Most of their fiber would be broken down in the rumen. And so there's not a whole lot left, but they do have somewhat of a cecum uh, in their intestine. Certainly larger than ours. Yeah. Okay. So what about what about other herbivores? Like when you th when I think of uh squirrels or mice, they seem to want to go for a lot of a lot of seeds and grains. So are their guts like rabbits and cows at all or do they have to worry as much about fermenting things? So uh mice for example, would consume a um, a somewhat of a mixed diet, right? They're going to eat a whole bunch of different things. And so they do have some fermentation in a cecum and their large intestine, but nothing, not anywhere near compared to like a rabbit or a cow uh, in terms of their use of fiber from their diets um, because they do eat a more variable diet. Some animals like guinea pigs or chinchillas that are strict herbivores, they would digest food fairly similar to that of a rabbit. So it sort of depends on the animal and then what types of plant material they eat since there's different, like, varying quality of plant material. You know, thinking about cattle and ruminants being able to eat the lowest quality uh, because their fermentation occurs first. And then rabbits and horses would need a slightly higher quality but still eat a lot of fiber. And then a lot of those other animals tend not to eat quite as much fiber or as much food as uh, the rabbits or horse or ruminants. And... And so then, yeah, what about what about birds? Because there are a lot of birds that are eating seeds or eating fruit. So uh, are they quite a different gut again? Yeah, they are. So uh, birds that fly tend not to rely a whole lot on fermentation because that process takes time for bacteria to break down the nutrients. And if they uh, ate a really high fiber diet and depended a lot on fermentation, that food and undigested material in their GI tract would weigh them down. And so they tend not to ferment very much. But when we get to bigger birds like chickens who don't 
fly, uh, they will rely, they'll have fermentation. They actually have two cecum. So they have one that on each side of their intestines that runs up the side. So they have two cecum and they rely then on fermentation from that corn, right? The seed coat of corn and stuff that then they can utilize those nutrients. Uh, so I, I've, I've heard that chickens uh, eat, you know, small rocks to help grind up their food. Is that a common strategy in birds that don't fly? Yeah, a lot of birds that don't fly uh, will eat rocks and then they have them uh, located uh, in a section of their GI tract in the gizzards. So I don't know if you're familiar with that. Not, not very. <laughs> okay. So, and it's a very hard muscular organ that um, along with those rocks helps to break down and grind up the seed coat to make the inside of the seed uh, more accessible. It only really happens in birds that don't fly. So like chickens and turkeys and some of our larger birds will do that as well. Um, because obviously again, it's that weight issue um, and the diet uh, whereas like our parrots or canaries, those ones wouldn't rely on consuming rocks to help grind up that food material. Is that is that only in birds or are there other animals that use rocks to help in the digestion process? I am only aware of birds that do it. I guess that doesn't mean there isn't some other animal that does, but... Um, Certainly not a common one. Yeah. <laughs> this This whole gut scenario is just some it's fascinating to me oh yeah i think it's i I think it's amazing how different uh different species of animals are and to look at differences in their gastrointestinal tracts based on what diet they eat because a lot of the other organ systems between animals are so similar and there's not much variation but their uh, digestive systems vary so much based on the type of diet they eat and how you know how they can best develop a strategy to meet the needs based on that diet. Are there are there any digestive systems that you think are really fascinating that we haven't touched on so far? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think that probably the rabbit is one of the cooler ones just because, like, again, thinking about the fact that they can produce those two different types of stool and that their body can utilize the nutrients that way. I think that makes rabbits kind of fascinating. And also, right, maybe... A lot of times people think it's a little disgusting, but um, still interesting to kind of think about it that way. Um, And then cats are kind of the total opposite because they only eat protein in their diet. Naturally, their um, gastrointestinal tract is very simple and they almost have, they don't have a cecum. They have almost no large intestine because their diet is just designed to eat um, solely protein. So kind of the two extremes, I think it's really interesting. So most of what cats eat can get processed pretty easily in the small intestine. Mm-hmm. Huh. Okay. And then where where do dogs fall in this? Are they similar to cats or are they somewhere in the middle? Yeah, dogs would be, I think, sliding down the scale, right, between cats and rabbits. They're probably closer to cats, but more towards the middle. Um, and then humans and pigs are very, like, kind of right in the middle in terms of omnivores. And dogs are kind of between cats and people. <laughs> Well, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. You can learn more about Dr. Carr and find links to information on her teaching and research at our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. We'll be right back after this with more Science for the People. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. 
find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm your host, Marian Kilgore. With me today is Mark Stumpf-Allen, the Compost Programs Coordinator for the City of Edmonton, Alberta, but he's also more commonly known as Edmonton's Compost Doctor. Growing up, Mark was expected to help support his family by working in the family garden, and as an adult, he realized that he had developed a powerful respect for the soil and plant life. He considers himself a partner in his soil's efforts to repair itself and continue to provide nutritious food. In his job with the City of Edmonton, he helps residents with waste reduction, soil building, and sustainability. And he's regularly out and about teaching and answering questions about composting and grass cycling. So thanks for joining me me today. My pleasure. So I guess to get us started off, how did you get interested in composting? Uh, Well, as a child, composting was something that my parents did. And um, as a toddler, it was my job to go outside in the garden and stomp on the eggshells and work them down into the soil. And um, mum would often get frustrated with me coming in the house with boots caked with heavy clay, muddy soil. Uh, Here in Edmonton, our clay is... uh, when it it gets wet, it uh, sticks and makes boots very heavy. So uh, it was a bit of a frustration for my mother, but I loved uh, just being out there in the dirt and stomping around and getting dirty. <laughs> so then from the city of Edmonton's perspective, why is the city interested in in composting and getting people to compost? Well, the city of Edmonton is a unique and comprehensive waste system where our uh our garb- household waste uh, collection goes into a large sorting area and then most of it goes off to a composter where it is composted and then screened. And uh, so the city of Edmonton provides the composting service as many municipalities do. But my job is to get people interested in recycling at home and why the city is interested in that because our uh, transforming Edmonton, our overall our overarching city focus is one of uh, invent environmental sustainability. So we'd like to see as many people uh, as possible recycling organic waste at home, uh, reusing it to build soil, and to keep it out of that waste system to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions associated with transportation and processing. So the less that the garbage trucks have to pick up on the way by, the the better off everybody is? Exactly. So for those who might not be familiar just in general, what is composting? Well, it's a controlled decomposition process. It's different from just the decay that happens in nature. Um, It's different from digestion or fermentation, which are different methods of recycling uh, organic waste. Uh, It builds a product that is um, an excellent soil builder, uh, a nutrient bank, a fertilizer for your plants, and it's a alive, you are actually, when you compost, if you're doing it well, you're breeding microbes, which the soil needs to feed our plants. So compost is the only thing that does all of those three things. Um, But it is a controlled process. It's not just a pile of waste. When I was younger and in school, we learned about worms breaking down organic matter in the soil. But with composting, that's not necessarily the case, right? Well, the worms don't have teeth, so they can't actually get in there and break anything down. It is the bacteria and the fungi and other microbes that are part of the system that use their digestive juices to uh, decompose, to break down the the organic, uh, I guess, chemical bonds, you could say. 
Uh, so the uh, bacteria and fungi have different functions in the in the soil. Bacterial decomposition is where we get some of those odors, the ripe the ripeness that comes from rotting material, and that is usually a sign of they're working on some fresh material that contains lots of nitrogen. Whereas on the other side, the fungi are working on the carbons, the the denser material, the stuff that takes longer to break down, and they're the the friends who give us the the beautiful fresh air smell that we encounter when we go for walks in nature. Okay. So where do those uh, bacteria and fungi come from? Are they just sort of present in the food that gets thrown into the compost pile, or do they have to get added? They're in in the food itself, in our hands when we're leaving our handprints all over that apple core. They're in the soil or in the compost pile. They're occasionally brought in from other uh, wildlife that's roaming around outside. They blew in on the wind. They're basically everywhere. Uh, so it's a bit of a crapshoot. It's a bit of a hit and miss as to what you have in your soil um, or in your compost pile. Um, but that's, an, that's one of the, as you get better at composting, that's one of the things you try to control. You try to bring in different microbes. If you think your soil might be missing something important, then you would go out and buy it and bring it back, add it to your soil and to your compost, and then hopefully you'll have it as part of a, a working system, a better working system. So what, sort of, uh, so what sort of microbes would you typically add to a soil then? Uh, well, a very common one is rhizobium, which you can buy uh, attached to seeds of legumes because the, this rhizobium is a bacteria that has a relationship with the root systems of legumes. And those are the, those are the critters who are responsible for fixing the nitrogen in the, in the root systems of the, the legume plants. So if you don't have that rhizobium in your soil, your legumes are not fixing the nitrogen. So that's one thing that you can uh, look for. And if you see you don't have those little red nodules on your uh, leguminous plant roots, then you can go out and get some treated seed or, or buy the rhizobium inoculant. Another really common one, of course, on the fungal side is mycorrhiza. And what's mycorrhiza? Oh, it's a type of fungus that has a relationship in the plant roots, which um, uh, basically it helps the plant. It's very cooperative. It helps the plants get the nutrients it needs. It help, helps move things through the soil. If a plant needs a certain nutrient, then it will send a little message to the mycorrhizal fungi, and the fungi will send out its mycelium through the soil and bring the, the nutrients that plant needs. Our woody plants have a, a really strong relationship with the fungi in the soil in the same way that we have a relationship with our gut microbial uh, food web as well with our uh, bacterial cultures. So the, the the fungus is forming a network and moving nutrients around between plants? Exactly. And the plants can communicate with each other through that network as well. I had no idea. That is cool. So, ah, fungi so, are amazingly cooperative. Uh, just fascinating. Some of the work done by Paul Stamets and, and through uh, permaculture communities is an absolutely fascinating uh, thing to delve into. Okay. Well, uh, so then, before I wander too far off of the compost topic, you mentioned that the bacteria are responsible for some of the smell that we sometimes get with compost. Um, is is smell with composting inevitable, or is it something that you can control? Oh, as I said, composting is a controlled process. And so the first thing you want to do is, um, before you even start composting, take a look at what you're putting into the compost bin and try and guess the level of odors that you're going to get from that material. And then balance. Um, balance out your carbons with the nitrogens to try and get a nice, even working compost pile. So, so when you, Sorry, when you oh, mentioned nitrogens and carbons, what are we talking about there? We're talking about um, carbon-based life, which is what we have on the planet. Um, we're all carbon-based, mostly water. So our bodies are comprised chemically of mostly water and then quite a bit of carbon, which is the energy of the universe. So when we eat carbohydrates, 
we're eating those sugars, that energy. Uh, then there's a, a bit of nitrogen, and the nitrogen is basically what makes our systems work and holds us all together. In, um, so whenever you're, if you remember back to junior high school, you probably talked about carbon to nitrogen ratios. And certainly if you're reading any books about composting, there's all kinds of rules about uh, getting the right carbon to nitrogen ratio and balancing this and that. And um, I tend to ignore those rules. I just like to look at things, whether they're fresh and juicy and green and pretty new, or if they were uh, a plant long time ago. So if it is a dead stems, like for example, the spring, there's lots of dead stems, dead leaves laying around, bits of plant pieces. All of those are the browns, high carbon material. So when a plant or an animal is fresh and alive, there's lots of nitrogen, there's that carbon to nitrogen ratio. And then as the plant or the animal decays and breaks down, the nitrogen is consumed by bacterial metabolism and a whole bunch of chemistry stuff goes on. And basically the nitrogen level reduces the percent of nitrogen so you've got more more carbon i'm just getting complicated it doesn't have to be this complicated (laughs) what i talk about so you want to to people about is greens and browns is is it fresh and juicy and rich is it going to smell or is it a brown is it going to take a long time and then i like to empower people put them in control of that decomposition process i don't like to encumber people with a whole bunch of rules we don't have to worry about 30 to 1 or 19 to 1 carbon to nitrogen ratio or 30% moisture, any of that stuff that you'll read in the in the science books. I just want people to know that it's the green things that are going to give you some odors. So if there's odors in your compost bin, add some brown thing, browns. It's also the greens that are going to get things hot and speed it, speed them up and get the uh, bacteria working. And so you want to always have some greens in your bin. Uh, and it's the more greens you have, the faster it's going to work. So if you're in a hurry, if you want to make compost right away, get more greens in there. So if you were just composting Mm -hmm. kitchen scraps, you know, scrap vegetables and that sort of thing, you'd probably, you'd have more odor, but it would turn into finished compost faster than if you were mixing in a lot of tree leaves and that sort of thing? Yes, absolutely. And if you've got a lot of yard waste or a lot of leaves from trees, then you're looking at making a much more brown compost material, which is going to take longer, but it's going to smell great. So then are the fungus more focused on breaking down that brown material and the bacteria are more on the squishy stuff? Uh, or is it yes. a bit, sort of? Well, generally that. Uh, that's an oversimplification, of course. But like I say, you don't need to know the chemistry or the biology of, of the process to, to be a good composter. Uh, there are other um, other little things that I, microbes that I like to talk about, the actinomycetes, mostly just because I like to say the word actinomycetes. And um, I can't spell it, but I love to say it. And they are responsible for that beautiful smell that you get uh, in the forest in the summertime after a rain. So that, they, um, that smell isn't the smell of soil, it's the smell of the life in the soil waking up and going to work. As soon as the microbes get water and air, which are essential for their metabolism, then they are able to do their job and go to work. Water and air is what makes our compost pile go. So then with the air side of things, uh, how much, if you're just home composting, how much do you have to worry about turning the pile and mixing things up? Well, a certain amount of oxygen will permeate the pile just uh, from from the edges of the pile. Once your pile gets quite large then it will tend to insulate itself and work faster, and then it's going to run out of oxygen a little bit sooner. So that's when you'll notice that you'll get those ripe smells. And that's when, that's your sign that um, either you need to spread out your pile a bit and get it a little bit lower so that more oxygen can permeate, or do something a little bit lazy, like put a perforated pipe or some sticks or something in there, or just get um, grab your hockey stick and just fluff things up a little bit. Just lift up the material, let the carbon dioxide out, let some oxygen in, and, and you'll be fine. You really never have to turn um, a whole compost pile if you're working at the home level. 
generally you just don't have an enough compost at work unless you're a caterer or home-based business or you've got an orchard. So something fairly straightforward, like just shoving a stick in there and wiggling it around will get enough oxygen in to make a difference? Sure. And then it depends on your container and your physical ability. Basically, everyone has their different input, their different way of doing it, their different abilities. And uh, we have a saying here at Edmonton, if you've seen one compost pile, you've seen just one compost pile. Because uh, So it's my job then to help people find the easiest way they can, the right tool for the job, uh, perhaps relocate their compost bin, put it in a sunnier location or a less windy location, uh, set them up with a different kind of tool, uh, and maybe just share some tips on how they can use their compost more quickly and more easily, especially if they have a vegetable garden. It's uh, super easy here in, in the north in our climate, super easy to make and use compost year-round. So what sort of role then does does moisture play? Well, the bacterial enzymes and the fungal acids uh, are liquids that need to have some moisture there to work. And um, the bacteria, they move around on this layer of moisture that uh, clings to the particles in the in the compost. And of course, between those particles uh, is the air voids where the oxygen moves through. So um, here uh, in Edmonton, it's, you, we get some incredibly dry winter uh, days, especially in the fall, and that can suck the moisture right out of the compost pile, which then just makes it stop working entirely. Uh, so the, just like us, the life in the pile and the chemicals they're using, their digestive juices all need to be moist in order to, do, to work. The other side of that, of course, is the more water you've got in in those voids, the less oxygen you have. And so that means things are going to slow down because you're starting to limit the amount of oxygen available for your microbes. Okay. So you don't want it dripping wet, but you want enough moisture in there that that the bacteria can work. Yeah. Most books will tell you 30%, which is about like a wrung out rag. Just grab a rag and squeeze it all the water, and that's about 30% moisture. So we have all these variables. We have the what sort of materials we've put into the compost pile, uh, how, how and how much moisture there is, how much mm-hmm. oxygen we're letting into the pile. And you mentioned, but you mentioned that composting doesn't really have to be all that complicated. So is this no. the sort of situation where, as long as you're happy with what you've got going on, it'll eventually all break down? Exactly. People will tell you that there is no such thing as the perfect compost pile. You'll never get all those ratios exactly lined up. And if you do, it's just by chance, and it will last about a millisecond, and then it's gone, and then you no longer have the perfect compost pile. Well, I don't like rules like that. Like I say, I'm all about empowerment. If your pile is a little too green, add some browns. If it's a little too dry, add some water. Uh, You just learn as you go. You make mistakes. Uh, When things go wrong, you laugh it off and you you correct the problem and you keep going. It uh, doesn't have to be perfect. It'll work no matter matter what's in that pile. Decomposition happens. That's nature doing its job. That's the bacteria and the fungi just eating and and, uh, having a good time, having a big party in your compost pile. And eventually all those hardworking microbes will be spread out on your lawn or in your flowers or in your vegetable garden and they will go to work in the soil to grow whatever plants you have you're putting down there. So when you are composting and you're staying within that those parameters, the greens, browns, water, air, and balancing those four elements, then you're creating a living product, which is then going to go onto your soil and inoculate the soil. It's going to have nutrient value, which is going to feed your plants slowly over time, naturally the way nature intended it to happen. And it's going to contain uh, carbon and humus that is going to build soil. So when you talk about building soil, um, is that just in terms of volume or is there more going on with the 
humus in the soil? Oh, there's more going on uh, in the soil than, than just the, the carbon and nitrogen. And this is where the worms come in because they are very helpful soil builders. Now, when you were a kid and you were worm composting, do you remember how that uh, that worm stuff, that those castings used to stick to your fingers and get stuck in your fingernails and you have to go and scrub them off with soap and water? Well, that is uh, part of the glue that turns our rocks and minerals into uh, particles of soil. That's what takes uh, here in uh, in Edmonton. What takes our little fine bits of clay and separates them apart and sticks a little bit of the worm poop in there and creates a little brick of of clay soil. And that will stick to other elements and silicates and things in the soil that will become soil aggregates. And then you're starting to get a very workable product, and you're getting soil that isn't no longer compacted, but will let the uh, the rainwater permeate through and will. Uh, not just not not only not flood but also be well drained and uh, not go anaerobic uh, air is very important in the soil so you want to make sure that those particles of rock are separated with organic material uh, and those glues that are made by the worms and all the other uh, life that's in the soil so the compost is more complicated than just slow release fertilizer is what i'm taking yes. away from this it's infinitely complicated and infinitely simple at the same time. <laughs> but my job is my job is to make it easy and accessible. Fair enough. Could I do something like put organic scraps and organic waste in a hole in the ground and have a similar oh, sort of effect? Absolutely. You can do whatever you want with your organics. It, it's going to break down as long as you uh, control the, the odors and don't uh, disturb the neighbors. As long as you don't have piles of waste collecting, then... Um, Definitely, you can experiment and have fun in a number of different ways. And then once you get pretty good at composting, you can start practicing some different recipes, starting to increase your greens if you want to make a more nitrogen-rich product or a faster hot compost pile, which is an incredible inoculant that you can do all kinds of wonderful, wonderful things with. Or if you want to build a, a more brown pile or even get some leaf mold into your soil. Because uh, the more carbon you have, the, the carbon part is the soil builder. And so that's going to uh, build aggregates out of compact soil. It's going to make it really easy on your tools and on your back to dig into your soil if you've got lots of carbons in there. So depending on what you're growing, what what crop you're wanting to harvest, you can just uh, adjust your recipe to uh, to give you a better product for your purposes. And there's lots of information on the internet. So is there is there any downside to putting partially completed compost, like before it turns into the really nice brown, done sort of smelling compost? Is there any impact of putting half-done compost in the garden? There is, absolutely. And uh, so that gives us our old rule of don't use unfinished compost in your garden. And the reason for that is because bacteria in the soil are very good at taking nitrogen. And... Um, they're, they're better than plant roots are. So if you are putting some unfinished material, some green material in your topsoil, the bacteria will then be over there where that waste is. They're not going to be feeding your plant roots where they should be. They're not going to be establishing that relationship with your plants. They're like us. They go where the, the cheapest meal is. And so it will uh, take the nitrogen that's in your soil and it'll move it away from the plant roots and it'll immobilize it there for a while until things finish up and balance out. However, the more I learn about soil and the more I play with greens in my garden, I've learned that by keeping a layer of fresh waste on top of the soil, like fresh prunings or grass clippings or kitchen scraps, and leaving that in contact with the soil, it will certainly take nitrogen from the plants for a while. But because the bacteria have so much to eat in the soil, uh, there's always food available. They are reproducing at a remarkable rate. And so you're 
uh, you're farming the microbes that you want to grow in your soil. Wherever you want a lot of bacteria, you're putting some greens right there on the topsoil, uh, covering it over with a little bit of brown mulch to protect it, and farming the bacteria right there in the topsoil. And then after they've munched away on that fresh stuff, they'll go back to the plants, and then there'll be an incredible amount of extra nitrogen available for your plant roots. And your plant roots get that extra nitrogen when the predators like the flagellates and the mites and the beetles and the slugs and the, all those things come along and eat up the bacteria and poop it out. And then all of that bacteria is available for your plant roots. Huh, okay. It's the microbes in the soil that feed your plants. It's not uh, not something out of a bottle. Okay. That's interesting. So when we add a uh, sort of store-bought, you know, like the powdered fertilizer you mix up with water, mm-hmm. is that sort of a quick fix, not really a long-term solution? Exactly. Exactly. And if, if you're looking for that prized dahlia or that beautiful rose bush, then you would go out and get the proper fertilizer for the job. And you'd splash some of that on and follow the directions and um, a little bit of savvy know-how, some practicing and experimentation is is needed for that as well. And um, there are, well, here in Edmonton, there's all kinds of amazing clubs on the internet that will help you with specifically the information you need. However, whenever you add a chemical input, you are doing some damage to the soil. Not much, but a little bit. And over time, it builds up. So if you're only relying on chemicals to grow your plants, you will get plants, but your soil is suffering. Um, and if you ever stop using those chemicals, your plants will be terrible. And you'll think, oh, I've got to go back to using fertilizers. Well, actually, no, while you're using your fertilizers, you should also be uh, feeding your soil and building humus and mulching and e- even watering and doing all those things that your plants need you to do for them. So on There's a no of- one thing, not even compost, is the one thing that's going to do it all. You have to take a, a holistic approach to your to your plants. And, um, yeah, choose the different tools that are, that are in our tool belt to get the best possible outcome. Fair enough. Um, so Edmonton also has a fairly large-scale composting, op- like industrial-sized composting operation. How is that different from the home, small, kitchen scrap-sized pile? Well, in your uh, kitchen scrap pile, you are in control of what goes in there. And you're not putting things like uh, dog poop in there. Uh, because you know that the E. coli is going to remain and it's going to be something you have to deal with then on your hands or in your garden. Uh, so on the industrial side, there's little controls about what's going in. And so obviously there's going to be some contamination in there. There's going to be, uh, I mean, here in Edmonton, we've got eco stations for our household hazardous waste and our electronics. And Edmontonians are great about using them, but things do find their way through the system. Well, hearing aid battery or something is going to be in there. Now, because those metals or those contaminants are diluted through huge amounts, acres of compost, uh, it won't be adding a lot of, of um, won't be adding any problems to your soil. All every batch of the compost that we make out of uh, out of our industrial system is tested and it is graded, and we only sell the best uh, horticultural grades which are made in a special process. You don't have control over what's going into the uh, the city-sized compost. So do you get more odors out of that since you don't have control over how what sort of ratios are going in? Oh, I see what you're asking now. Uh, even in that system, we do have control over the amounts of greens and browns that are coming in because we use quite a bit of uh, sewage sludge as well. We, have, we use those biosolids, and they're a very green material. So we just uh, add more or less of that to... Uh, to balance our greens and browns, oh. there are there are a team of uh, of engineers working there uh, with every load that goes in, making sure that what goes in is a good balance of greens and browns. The process itself is very hot inside that big building that we compost in. 
um, it reaches very high temperatures. Uh, so we uh, we have to, again, control our water and our air to make sure that things are, are working. Um, if things get too hot, we need to cool it down a bit. It's very rare that things ever get too cold in there. Even in the dead of winter, that uh, building heats itself. So our teams are working to balance the greens and the browns as things go in. Of course, in the summertime with uh, grass clippings, there's a lot more green material available. In the fall with all the autumn leaves, there's a lot more brown material available. So um, they've developed a system, a seasonal system of uh, balancing those greens and browns. With something like the sewage sludge or, you know, the dog poop that ends up just in the garbage, how do you deal with pathogens in those materials? No, it's all pasteurized with temperature. We make sure it reaches the, the proper temperature, 53 degrees uh, for a certain number of days, two or three days, I think. All that information is on the website, edmonton.ca slash waste. They'll go through exactly what um, what the process is to get that uh, proper temperature. So aside from uh, poop and sewage and whatnot, are there things that you can compost in your high-temperature industrial composting that are difficult or impossible to do in a small household-sized compost pile? Well, that's a great question. And really, it's trial and error as to what you have in your yard that is difficult to compost and what is easy. And you'll certainly notice if you've got a lot of evergreens that some of those um, tough uh, material that are filled with resins and some oils that resist um, decomposition, those are going to take a long time. So some people who home compost still do send off a lot of material like that to the to our industrial composter where it does break down more quickly. Um, but I also let people know that those are things that can be chopped up a little bit and used as mulch around the uh, the woody plants and that looks really pretty as a ground cover and helps to protect the soil and will eventually break down. So yes, indeed, there are things like corn stalks and if you don't have a lot of room for chopping up your corn stalks and building a pile out of those, then uh, certainly they will uh, decompose, decompose uh, quite quickly in our system. What about those uh, baggies that look like plastic but claim to be compostable? I've inherited a couple of compost piles in my life that had those in them years later. So are those <laughs> something that need higher temperatures to compost? Yes. <clears throat> yeah, and the right temperature and moisture levels are uh, certainly helpful to get those breaking down quicker, although they will break down uh, just over a longer amount of time if they're in your backyard compost bin. Now, you have to know that the technology has improved quite a bit over the years, and now the biodegradable bags are more easily and quickly biodegraded, and it, it really depends on what's going into the pile as well. So you can uh, play with those if, if you want to use them. It really has no benefit to the home composter, and currently in Edmonton system, uh, we don't recommend that residents buy it, although there are some places, for example, down south, uh, Calgary is uh, providing... Uh, biodegradable bags with their um, with their system. Uh, also, there are different grades of biodegradability, and you will see that the ones that break down the easiest are the ones that are labeled compostable, not biodegradable. So look for the different symbols that are there on it. That uh, in Canada, that's all regulated by the Compost Council of Canada, who uh, keep all the information on their website, compost.org. Oh, okay. I, I had just sort of written them off over the years because I kept running across them. But, oh. oh, that's good to know that they've gotten better. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time. It's been a great conversation. To learn more about Mark, the compost doctor, and Edmonton's composting education, head over to the show notes on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. There you can also find past episodes, our social media links, and learn how to support the show. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time on Science for the People. 
Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders.